You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. On the pod today, we talked to Jessica Nordell, who's a science and culture journalist whose writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Republic, and many other publications. A former writer for public radio and producer for American Public Media, she graduated from Harvard University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she lives in Minneapolis. Uh, her new book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning. Enjoy the pod. <music> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Jessica Nardell, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So you've written this new book called uh, The End of Bias, uh, and we were just sort of chatting, and I said, asked if you knew the, the work we've done in this area, and, and you hadn't, though you're familiar with Second City. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is about six years ago or seven years ago, I found myself up at the campus of the University of Chicago at the Booth School of Business, meeting with uh, Heather Caruso, uh, who at that point was working for Richard Thaler uh, in the Center for, um, uh, uh, why am I forgetting, the Center for Decision Learning? Like, I think that's what it's called. Anyway, uh, we ended up finding all these connect points between the worlds of nudge uh, and improvisation. The biggest, of course, is yes and, which is directly, right? What behavioral economics shows us is that people's default position is to do nothing or say no. And the yes and exercise actually has people embody a, 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 di- a different thing, a nudge. So we actually, for four years, uh, had a thing running called the Second Science Project. We're looking to have it happen again. And it's basically where behavioral science meets improvisation and vice versa. And you look at all these exercises. So if you if you think about a little bit, and you've taken some improv, but, you know, we talk about uh, uh, seeding the need to be right. Uh, we talk about not being in judgment of self or others if you want to be creative because mm-hmm. you can't. Um, and then we teach people to get comfortable with, with failure. 
And and this is a big thing that you start the book with, where you talk about, you write, quote, the most essential part of this journey was making and learning from mistakes, end quote. I, I, I think you put uh, a double click on that, and I will as well, because I think it's probably the chief thing that stands between people working on this area or choosing not to. That is that is fascinating. I was going to ask if part of yeah part of the work you're doing is about becoming comfortable with discomfort, you know, which yeah. is part of failing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I mean, one of the experiences that I had while working on this book was like screwing up yeah. in a public way and having to work through all of the uncomfortable feelings that come with screwing up. And ultimately, sort of sinking into the fact that that is where growth happens. That is actually where change happens. And instead of running away from it, if we can sit with it, if we can tolerate that discomfort, then the world can start to open. Uh, one of my pals, Dolly Chug, who's at the Stern School of Business. Yeah, you know, Dolly. Uh, I love how she taught in, in her book, A More Just Future, she talks about dressing for the weather and this mm. idea that, that if you're going to go down this journey, Make sure you're wearing the right clothes because it's 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 not going to be. I mean, I, I I'm a you know a 56 year old white man and, and you you're white presenting, um, and and it's like it's not it's not comfortable to always to explore our own the things we didn't know. But I mean, we also like everyone were children and we were taught or not taught or and we're also within working and living and going to school within systems that we didn't create and we can't see as unjust until you become older. And, and then that's when you have a choice. Exactly. And I think that one of the things that is also helpful in thinking about this is realizing everyone is at some point on a journey. Yeah. And very few of us have reached perfect enlightenment and turned into pure energy and light and, you know, dissipated into the universe. No, that's clearly not what's going on right now. <laughs> So we're all somewhere on that journey. And our I think part of our role here on Earth is to move more toward understanding, you know, move more right. further on the journey, not to perfection, but closer, you know, in the direction of understanding and compassion and seeing reality as it is, rather than in this sort of hallucinatory experience that we do live in because of the biases that we have grown up with. And I think one when you learn that human beings learn well through storytelling, uh, there's a lot of that in the book. And you actually begin the book by introducing us to a scientist by the name of Ben Barris. Can you tell us about Ben and their work? Yes, I came across Ben's work back in 2006 when I was starting out as a journalist. And it was sort of... Um, coincided with some of my own early experiences of workplace gender bias. And Ben Barris became well-known outside of neurobiology, which is his field, um, for a response he gave to a talk at Harvard delivered by Larry Summers, then president mm -hmm. of Harvard, in which Larry Summers sort of opined that if we look at the dearth of women in science, we have to acknowledge that there might be some kind of different aptitude, some lesser aptitude that women have. Larry Summers. And Ben Barris had a very fascinating response mm -hmm. because Ben Barris had transitioned from presenting as a woman to presenting as a man 
in his 40s. So he had spent the first part of his scientific career being known by others in the scientific community as female, and then transitioned and experienced the life of a scientist seen as a man, being seen as a man. And his experience taught him that the experience of men and women in science is completely different. So after he transitioned, after he became known as Ben and seen as Ben by his colleagues and by the scientific world, all of these things changed. He started to be given the benefit of the doubt in scientific contexts. He wasn't interrupted in meetings as much. People gave him more respect. One scientist was even overheard at a conference, overheard saying, Ben gave a great presentation today, but his work is so much better than his sister's. Mm. Not knowing that those two people that scientists had in mind were in fact the same person doing the same research. So, so Ben, you know, hearing these comments by Larry Summers just could not stay quiet. And so he, he wrote a piece that explained exactly what his experience was. And he said, I have had the thought a million times I am taken more seriously now. But he wouldn't have known this if he hadn't undergone that transition. And I think that one of the challenges with bias is that when we live inside a social identity, we don't have other experiences to draw on, you know, personal experiences. It's only if we undergo some kind of massive change in how the world sees us that we actually get to feel what it feels like inside a different identity, inside a different body. Yeah, the 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 very small sliver that I can relate to there is if I'm communicating with someone who doesn't know, hasn't seen a picture of me or, or what, they usually assume I'm a, a woman. Yes. And so, and I have found that that kind of communication is very different than when they know they're dealing with a man. What's the difference? Oh, it's, <laughs> what do you uh, let me, let me, let me, t- uh, I'm going to, I'm going to explain it through an exercise that we do. Uh, so when we are brought in and, and second city gets brought in a lot of companies to, to lead these kinds of exercises because they're fun. Uh, but they're also embodied and revealing. So we have an exercise uh, that is about the way women often get talked to in the workplace. And it's called Justin Little. So what we have is you have two people pair up and we'll have, uh, I'll get chosen to tell you my life story in a minute, you know, like my, my accomplishments, my work. Then your job is to tell it back to me, but inserting the words just and little. So you just have this little job at this theater, which just does comedy shows. And you have these little science experiments that you do uh, that just go over. To it. And it is, especially for men who haven't received that, it's terrible. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So that, it's that sort of like, and, and look, I'm on because I've been doing this work now at this, this intersection, I am on the hunt. Um, one of the, one of the scientists we work with, Nick Epley, um, uh, who took over the center from, from Richard Thaler. Uh, his work is all about how leave race out of it or s- gender out of it in our interpersonal relationships. We get it wrong usually around 70% of the time. So if we're starting with that level of deficit, none of us should be surprised by this either. I mean, the human brain can only take so much and and increasingly we are taxing it. And you talk about that in in the book as well. Um, But like we get it wrong all the time. Why? Mm -hmm. And and if you can enter, I I talk often about replacing blame with curiosity. 
Mm-hmm. So just like leave the blame to the side. Just let, let's be curious. Exactly. That, that can create the space for opportunity for, for, for knowledge to yes. exist. Between us. Yes. And also creating space like Dolly talks about for not being so attached to the idea of having to be a good person all the time. Right. And be, do, you know, doing exactly the right thing all the time, creating space for, I think her word for it is goodish person, like yeah, a person good-ish. who's like, yep. you know, mm-hmm. Doing the best they can, maybe probably, you know, screwing up some of the time. I mean, one of the studies I came across when I was researching the book found that 90% of people thought they were more objective than average. Yes, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can't be correct. That was true of me, too. I mean, going into this project, I thought, well, I'm probably a little less biased than everyone else. You know, I think we, we, we often think that we are, um, you know, these problems exist out there, but they're probably not as big of a problem for us. And then, you know, for me, coming to a deep acceptance of the way that all of these biases were living in my own heart and mind was like an essential part of the journey. And I think it is for all of us. One of the things uh, we talk about in our work is that m- meaning is made in moments. And this this really important mm. thing around, around moments. Um, and you have a really cool quote in the book, you say, quote, laws create a floor, people determine the ceiling. In the space between floor and ceiling, the interpersonal moments matter. And I think we're saying the same thing. But I think what you're acknowledging is, is you have to acknowledge systems, people and all their biases, and then and then these these other areas. And with those all working at the same time, let's not kid ourselves that this isn't really highly complex. It is, but like we we have to navigate that complexity. We just have to. 100%. I mean, that was really brought home to me through my conversations with Connie Rice, the civil rights lawyer, who um, whose, whose story, you know, I tell in the book, but one of the things that really became very clear to her in her work with um, police departments, because she spent, so, so Connie Rice briefly, in a nutshell, is uh, a lawyer who spent something like 15 years suing the LAPD for discrimination, hammering them with lawsuit after lawsuit. And what she realized was that those lawsuits weren't fundamentally changing people's behavior. They weren't changing the culture. And she said, you know, Jessica, you can't legislate kindness. You can't create a policy that forces me to respect you or to like you, or to treat you well. And so, yeah, I mean, this this really also helped me see the way that we can't rely on laws and policies and structural change. That is essential, absolutely essential. And we can't move forward without those changes. But there is so much space. Anytime there's space for discretion, you know, for my choice and how I behave toward you, there's room for bias. And those Everyday experiences cause over time a huge amount of, you know, a, a huge impact for people. I was talking to this medical doctor uh, once, and I, I like this human being, but they they got we had an argument because they were like, bias is bad. Like, what? How can you tell me? about and, and I'm like, bias isn't bad or good. Bias exists in the in the human brain and body for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is. Uh, um, I recently read this book and I thought this was interesting where someone was talking about, oh, it's Jeffrey Cohen's book on belonging. Very good. And he's got a whole thing of like your age. He goes, you can say your age is in my case, 56, but it's 56 
plus billions and billions of years because you, we our, our brains and, and our bodies have evolved over time. But one of those things was to keep us safe in our tribes. Yes. It, it, and so I think that like, if you can't, I think it's a, a mis- it's like people say they don't see color. It's like, that's yeah. not the solution here. And the solution <laughs> isn't that, that there isn't bias. It's understanding that bias is at play constantly in any, in your action. And sometimes that can be work in our favor. And sometimes it goes the opposite way. Right. Yeah. And the, you know, with this idea of colorblindness that, you know, so I feel like is finally sort of being recognized as a fallacy and not yeah. helpful you know, the, the problem isn't in seeing differences. The problem is the value that we assign to differences and the hierarchy that we assign to differences. Um, and likewise, you know, our shortcuts in trying to understand each other are there for a reason because we can't just take in trillions of bits of information and try to make sense of it afresh every second. Right. But when that assumption conflicts with the value that I hold, that's where the problem is. Like if I, if my value is to treat you with respect and to treat you as an individual and to treat you as someone who is equal to me, and then my unexamined biases are interfering with that and causing me to treat you with disrespect and treat you as less than me or make assumptions about your competence or your ability, that's where that's where the problem lies. Um, you talk in the book about that we don't have great data about racial attitudes. That doesn't go back very far. But then you indicate that that kind of started to change in World War II. So what was it about World War II that made this this change? Yeah, you know, we don't have data about racial attitudes before like the 1920s and 30s because the psychology community didn't, recognize racial prejudice. They thought racial differences were real and important to study. And in fact, in the 19th century, a lot of research went into proving the superiority, quote unquote, of the white race. Um, And, you know, (laughs) adding data, you know, false, but adding data to these, you know, suppositions about racial hierarchies. And so, you know, a few things happened to change that. One is that there was in the early part of the 20th century, an influx of immigrants Mm -hmm. to the United States who then entered the psychology community and brought with them different perspectives, Chinese immigrants, Jewish immigrants, Eastern European immigrants, people who were had not been part of the psychology community. Um, That was one thing that changed. Another thing that changed was during World War II, the government was very worried that racism was getting in the way of the war effort. Mm. Um, there was a riot uh, in Detroit against Black factory workers living near white factory workers that were making war uh, equipment. And so the government started getting really worried that racism was going to interfere with our ability to to succeed in World War II. And so they the government actually commissioned um opinion surveys about racial discrimination and those were some of the very early um collections of data about racial attitudes in the US and did i i, I forget this i didn't have my notes but did did they end up doing like some pr type psa type campaigns around that or no no you know one, one thing that happened was um 
that when part of the army was integrated at the end of World War II, there were some opinion surveys commissioned to look at officers' attitudes, to actually look at what happened with white officers who were working and and fighting alongside um, Black people in the military. And they found that the integration of the army dramatically changed whites' attitudes. And Mm. those who who fought alongside Black um, men in the army had great respect, saw them as being incredibly um, effective militarily and supported more integrationist policies. This report was never made public. And part of the concern was that it would enrage uh, segregationists and it would be um, it, it wouldn't be accepted. So this this opinion survey that showed that integration actually effectively changes attitudes for the better was not made public. I don't I don't know that they were wrong. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that, that that's we, we talk about um, various truths that need to get revealed at, at a certain time. I mean, Darwin sat on that work for decades mm-hmm. because the, because of the fear. And we talked to um, Todd Cashton uh, about his book on, on, on the subject in terms of rebels and, 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 the, you know, they pay a price. It's like whistleblowers, mm-hmm. they pay a price. And it's, it's so that, that ability to sort of safely present, the truth is also a tricky part of this. And speaking of that, you you talk about this idea of white supremacy as a modern fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and I want you to go into that because I think that's kind of interesting, especially as it relates to what you term an archaeological mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one, yeah, it, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of this project was really diving deeply into history and looking for the origin of these ideas. Like, I really wanted to understand where where did sexism come from like who started it and where did racism come from and who decided that you know white people were you know of a, a superior race quote unquote um and so yeah i mean you know one of the things that was fascinating to me was looking at cultures where our pattern our contemporary prejudicial patterns weren't present so mm-hmm. for instance um there if you look at ancient egypt you don't see any sign of skin color prejudice. So I talked to many Egyptologists and archaeologists, and they said, if you look at the archaeological evidence, you see, for instance, people from Nubia, from what is now Southern Sudan, dark-skinned people from Nubia being buried alongside the most powerful rulers of the day in Egypt, in the Valley of the Kings. They rose to the very highest levels of the Egyptian political administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So we don't see, you know, skin color prejudice. But what's interesting is our <laughs> contemporary racism so like infuses, you know, academia that originally when when archaeologists saw King Tut's shoes and they saw pictures of Nubians on the underside, stitched into the underside of his shoes, they thought, oh, King Tut was obviously racist. This is a this was a, an anti-black, you know, sentiment. Mm-hmm. When in fact, what he had on the bottom of his shoes were pictures of Libyans and Nubians and people from all over the ancient world. And this was to symbolize that he was stomping on his political enemies. Mm-hmm. It was not a racist right. uh, act. But right. like the archaeologists at the time, and this wasn't that long ago, 
like couldn't couldn't conceive of a world, you know, outside of this sort of contemporary racist imagination. Amazing. Uh, Another thing that I thought was really interesting, and I thought of this, I knew we were having our conversation and I talked to Alexa every morning to put on my national public radio station. Uh, And this, this also this concept of women and support Mm. and then realizing that basically I, I could not think of, I mean, I guess ask Jeeves would be the one guy who helps us out, but mostly it's, it's women voices and women names. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the whole digital infrastructure of our life is is suffused with this idea of women as assistants. Alexa, Siri, Cortana, um, the default is a woman's voice. And that every time we hear, you know, a woman offering assistance, it reinforces this idea that women are here to support us and assist us and not actually run things. So I want to talk a bit about diversity training. Let's put it there. So, so mm-hmm. the the data on this is not good. I, I, mm-hmm. the, what we know, um, and I know this from the scientists that we work with, is the vast majority of training in this area is not successful, and and the reasons are rather obvious. I think, which is, uh, you know, people go into their shame bubble, and you can't learn when you're in shame. Um, But you also discovered some trainings that have some promise. So I want to talk about what what have you seen out there that looks like, hey, this might be the way to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest challenges with trainings is that they're often not uh, evaluated. So like they're, you know, it's kind of like giving a medicine to a group of people and then never actually testing to see whether their symptoms have gone away. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there are there are some trainings that that show some promise. You know, one of the trainings that's interesting is based in kind of cognitive behavior therapy. So it includes awareness, building people's awareness that they themselves might be susceptible to being biased or behaving in biased ways. Um, uh, building motivation. So kind of explaining what the stakes are and how consequential bias is in the world and then giving people strategies to try something new. So teaching people like what are some things they can do today, tomorrow, next week to actually make, make a difference and doing this all in the con, in a context that doesn't have shame and guilt built in, but instead curiosity and kind of the idea that, that we can grow. You know, one of the trainings that I find really fascinating actually doesn't focus on bias. Right. So this is a training by a psychologist named Jason Okanofua, who looks at educational disparities in discipline. And what he saw was that teachers and students were locked into this kind of feedback cycle, um, particularly uh, teachers of young black boys. Mm-hmm. So the so the teacher um, might have a stereotype about this student, maybe that they're going to act out or they're going to behave badly or something like that. And then the student who's expecting to be stereotyped, in fact, does act out because they're angry and they're upset that they're being stereotyped, which then confirms the teacher's expectation. So Okanofua thought, well, how can I interrupt this cycle? And he did something really interesting. He created an empathy exercise and he recruited a bunch of teachers and said, 
you know, you're here to review best practices in teaching and to explore the ways that fostering empathy and respect and understanding promote better student-teacher relationships. He didn't tell them that it was a training or an intervention. He didn't say anything about bias. He just said, this is, you know, this is just, you know, an exercise to sort of reinforce really good teaching practices. And then he had them read students' accounts of feeling understood by teachers, for instance. And he had them reflect on ways that they could promote empathy and understanding and respect with students. And so it was really about building empathy, understanding students' perspectives, not necessarily taking their side, but understanding where they're coming from. And what he found was that the teachers who participated in this empathy exercise experience suspended fewer students the following year, and particularly suspensions of Black and Latino students fell from 12% to 6%. Yeah. And I think this is such a fascinating approach because it was more about elevating the values of empathy and respect and understanding than it was about trying to decrease bias and discrimination. Yeah, one of the we have um uh we did all the orientation programming for u of c um not all of it but a segment of it for undergrad cool. and the law school and graduate school and one of the first exercises we do is uh get everyone in a circle and it's called i am somebody who and the leader the teacher says okay if you identify with one of these statements move to another place in in, in the circle um i'm somebody who is wearing jeans. I am somebody who likes Chicago Cubs. I am somebody who owns a gun. I'm somebody who is Christian. And what happens over the port, you realize that like, oh, this, this per- vegan also owns a gun. And, and it's like, you start to see people as complex and carrying yes. many qualities. And this is all right. This is the, the root stuff that we're dealing with is, is that yes. you can just see someone as having a heart and a mind, maybe a soul. Then, then, then you got a shot here. And the problem, what we're trying to upset is, is that particular bias that won't, won't let, allow that in. And the thing is telling someone they have to or shaming them for not is not going to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the big struggle. I, I, I'm sure having written this book and, and sort of getting a, a feel for who you are within this book is we're probably both lefties. <laughs> Probably. And and we have a lot of people who identify as 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 left who are also taking place in, in this shaming and blaming and muting and blocking. And it's like, I don't know how we do this thing apart. We don't, right? I mean, have to do yeah. this. We don't. And I get and I get and this is not to say that people who are victims of of, of this stuff need to be, you know. In the front lines, if you can't be in the front lines, you can't be in the front lines. I get that. We all have our personal traumas or our personal stuff. But for the bulk of us, especially for the bulk of us who are relatively secure in whatever position they're in, like we got to do this work together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I'm often really alarmed. I'm on the left side of the political spectrum and I hear my fellow lefty people making outrageously biased comments about people on the right. Mm -hmm. Um, I was speaking with um, someone not that long ago, a very strong, you know, sort of progressive 
um, mind. And this person described driving across North Dakota and saying, and he said, I just thought this is a, a state full of people. Wow. And I was thinking that's, that is, that is the problem. That is the problem that you are not able, you know, that, that, that this person who's espousing these, you know, leftist ideals isn't actually able to see people as complex and individual and, and equal. Yeah. What's interesting about this is, is like, I have a lot of women of color in the social justice uh, area that, that we've worked work with and they are loving and joyous and they are doing the work. They are not just tweeting about it. They are, they are showing up places and, and they're, bent is, is this sort of empathy bent it, it is let, let's let's assume we can have the conversation let's try to have the conversation so i i actually feel like i'm pretty sure the people who are in it and doing it are are there with with these kinds of muscles because you have to mm-hmm. to survive in that and i think we get drowned out in social media especially twitter because you know that's where you have journalists and you've got social justice people and you've got you know it, it, trying to get into attention and it's it's um I think we're being fed a false narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like the, the the work of cutting through that noise is really hard. I mean, I made an account at post. I don't know if I'm going to leave Twitter. I'm on there now. I have, I have enough followers. That I feel like I kind of needed to promote the podcast and other things, but man, oh man, it's, it's that, that, that noise makes it very hard to, you know, uh, have the energy to do the things we need to do to make the world a better place. Yeah. And we need to actually listen to each other and not just like attack each other. And we need to be curious and open to perspectives that are different from our perspectives without deciding that that person is bad or wrong. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the infrastructure of social media just doesn't create space for those conversations that are essential. All right. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but a couple other things I want you to talk about. Um, Talk about the way the Boston Symphony changed the way it auditioned. Mm, yeah. So the, you know, originally symphony auditions took place out in the open. The musician would walk across the stage and perform in front of judges and the judges would score the musician and they would go through several rounds and, you know, it was decided whether they would make it into the symphony or not. So in 1952, the Boston Symphony Orchestra changed the way they auditioned musicians. And instead of having the musicians just appear in front of the judges, they appeared behind a curtain. And women, in fact, were instructed to take off their shoes. So the judges wouldn't even hear the click of high heels. And so instead of, you know, seeing the musicians, they only were able to use the music to make the decision about whether this musician was worth, you know, being in the symphony or not. And it dramatically increased the number of women who uh, made it into symphonies. Um, curtained auditions became the, the norm in American orchestras. And um, some economists looked at this practice and they analyzed thousands of orchestra records. And they found that actually this practice of concealing the musician's identity increase the likelihood of women advancing to the next round by 50%. 50%. That's a lot. And so they concluded that this is a large part of why women are almost 40% of orchestras today. 
someone need to talk to Larry Summers. <laughs> is, that, is that just down the block? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Man. Okay. We mentioned this. So what, one last thing for the yes and story, because we talked about Twitter. Well, there's a perfect example of, of, and we get brought in a lot uh, to work in that space because no one knows how to talk to each other, but it's these four young white men yes. who created this thing. Yes. And then you had a really interesting Evan Williams uh, describing his baptism into the world of connectivity to an interviewer said, quote, but for, or, but for anyone from a marginalized group, the threat inherent in connecting all these minds would have been obvious from the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the, right. I mean, Twitter was started by like one of the points that I, that I make that I, that I really believe strongly is that homogeneity is risky. If you yeah. have a homogenous group designing anything, you are, you know, that, that group is, is at risk of missing really important things. And what, what the group that designed the infrastructure of Twitter missed was the presence of harassment and bullying online. Like these four white guys who designed, you know, who, who founded Twitter had not experienced online harassment on bulletin boards in the 1980s and 90s. If they had, they would have anticipated that this was going to be a really serious problem for this product that they were creating, but they didn't have the experience. They didn't understand it. They had no lived experience of being the target of online abuse. And, and this, and, and, and this kind of thing in tech runs deep. It, it's yes. from everything from photography, um, you know, uh, um, voice, it, you know, uh, and we know this from, from awful, uh, the, the way women are penalized, especially black women in healthcare because they haven't done the studies. Like, God forbid you have a heart attack or a heart issue. What do, they, what do they know? Because they only studied men. Exactly. I mean, for a long time, women's heart attack symptoms were considered atypical symptoms. Yeah. When in fact, they are typical for women, <laughs> but they were considered atypical. I mean, the, the pulse oximeter that's used to detect um, the level of oxygen in the blood. Recently, there, there was a study that found that it doesn't work as well on darker skin tones. Yeah. And so it is, you know, People with darker skin tones are not getting accurate, um, you know, accurately assessed in terms of their blood oxygen levels, because whoever designed the pulse oximeter did not take into account the fact that people are going to have different color skin tones. I think it was our, our podcast with Anissa Ramirez, if I'm remembering this correctly, which is uh, we didn't the, the reason that photography finally could take accurate shots of black people was because furniture sellers wanted to show the different shades of dressers. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. terrible. I mean, good yeah. that it changed, but also the reason being, oh, capitalism again, striking yeah. its. Yeah. All right. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I would say a time that I would have normally said no, but instead I said yes and was um, saying yes to my then long distance boyfriend uh, mm -hmm. who said he wanted to pack up all of his things and move across the country and move in together in Minnesota. He was living in California. I was living in Minnesota and we'd never lived in the same city. We dated long distance. And normally I would say that's insane. I barely have spent, you know, time with you, mm -hmm. but I said, yes, let's try it. And we've been married for seven years. Oh, I love that. Are you still in Minnesota? I am. Yeah, we're, we're here. Yeah. I'm, I'm married to a Minnesota girl. Oh, yay. 
Yeah, I love it. Uh, the book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning. Jessica Nordell, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive